0: Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well out there. What you're about to hear is part one of a very special interview that I did recently with Richard Harrison. That means the Richard Harrison, the man who was Gordon Lightfoot's road manager for most of the 70s and a little bit of the 80s. We had a great time talking, but the conversation went on for over an hour, and so I decided to break this episode into two pieces. So you will be hearing the next episode in a couple of weeks, but for right now, I really hope you enjoy part one of this interview, this conversation that I had with Richard Harrison, Gordon Lightfoot's road manager. Here we go.
1: The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot?
0: This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates the music of Gordon Lightfoot song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner. And with me today is Richard Harrison, and Richard was Gordon's road manager for a number of years in the 70s and into the early 80s. Richard, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you with us.
1: It's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you.
0: You wrote a book called Once Upon a Red Eye, and my first two questions for you is, number one, why did you write this? And number two, is there a significance to the title?
1: Well... There have been three bios of Gord out, two of them, as far as I'm concerned, you could use for toilet paper. Uh, They're just a compilation of interviews, news. They never met him or anything. The only one that's worth reading is by Nick Jennings, who's a very famous biographer. Mm -hmm. But all three of them put together, they only tell one side of the story. They don't say anything about what happened on the road. And I felt this was a missing link. It needed to be filled out. So I did that, and when I was halfway through, I approached Gordon with it, and he was thrilled because he, too, recognized that to complete his story, you had to have the experiences on the road because they were half the story. Writing, his personality, the story, they're the three things. So I finished the book, and he must have really loved it because he wrote both a back cover endorsement and he wrote the forward to the book, and that's something he's never done for anybody else. As a matter of fact, we had a pet phrase, which we stole from Simon and Garfunkel. We called them bookends, because if you put the Jennings bio and my books side to side, that's the complete story. He was very happy about it.
0: I should just say that I have the Jennings book here on my desk, and I use it when I'm preparing to do these podcasts, and I've also am about halfway through with your book, and that's really kind of all I need to know, that and the experiences that people have had with Gordon and with his music, of course. So the significance to the title, Once Upon a Red Eye, why did you choose that?
1: I thought it was cute. Uh, no, seriously, red eyes, they need an aircraft somewhere. And so they'll fly at Deadhead if they have to. But why not open it up for seats? Now, these flights typically leave at about midnight and you get in feeling like death warmed over at about seven in the morning. But they're necessary. There's one chapter in the book where Gordon was finishing up at the Universal Amphitheater in uh, North Hollywood, and he was hosting a CNE benefit with a whole bunch of other talented artists at the CNE in Toronto the, the very next day. And so we packed up the equipment after the show and just had no hotel, nothing. Just headed straight for the airport and took a red eye. And this happened on occasion. That's the significance of the title.
0: Okay, well that makes perfect sense and. We'll talk a little bit more about the traveling as we go through here. Now, you started out in your early days, you were in close contact with Jim, later Roger McGuinn. And I know that he changed his name, but what was he like in those early days, in the
1: early days of the birds? Roger is a very sort of laid back, um, I'd rather be an observer than a participant sort of guy. But once you get to know him, which I did very well, of course, because it was was with the birds that I cut my teeth, he had a a wicked sense of humor. He had a crazy side, too. For instance, he was driving a car in Midtown Manhattan. I was with him, and Clarence White was in the backseat. And long story short, I think he was a New York cabby wannabe. (laughs) He was a (laughs) madman driving. David
0: Brenner said it best. He said, whenever I'm in a cab in New York, I always feel like I should be leaning out the window shooting the car behind me. And it sounds like Roger was that kind of a driver.
1: Yeah. We're still fabulous friends. we were in contact even today. And we have a couple of things in common, one of which is an absolute love for the movie Dr. Strangelove. And every once in a while, I'll find a little nugget or he'll find a little nugget. And he'll send it to me or I'll send it to him. This is our bond. Very cool. And I'm All sure right. you both have seen the movie several times then. I once knew every line in it.
0: Wow. Okay. Now that is a devotee. Very cool. Did you get any contact back in those days with the recently passed David Crosby?
1: Well, first of all, David really didn't have any use for me at all. He was kind of a narcissist. And um, well, before I go any further on that, he is definitely one of the best high harmony singers in the world. No Mm -hmm. question about that. He is what completed unique sound of the birds. But he, he liked to take over, for instance, at Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. After one song, he started to get in on the Kennedy assassination, and how there's no way Oswald acted alone, and there's the grassy knoll and, this, and he's taking up stage time with all his talk. And you should have seen the look on Roger's face. <laughs> he was just fuming.
0: I've seen Monterey Pop, and I think Roger went on record at some point and said that was the beginning of the end. Crosby's time in the birds he also substituted for Neil Young when Buffalo Springfield played at yeah. Monterey and I think less than a year after that maybe just within a few months he'd been kicked out of the team. Try a month after that. Yeah so very very shortly after that. So where did you learn to do lighting and sound and the other stuff you did for Gordon? The book does talk about how you came into contact with him and how you got the gig with Lightfoot. But how did you learn your craft? Was it something that you studied? Was it something you just picked up? Did you kind of learn by doing on the job? How did you cut your teeth on the jobs that you did for Lightfoot?
1: Well, we'll start with sound. My mentor was my father. He was an electronics expert and and things like that. And he got me interested in that because he was in the business himself. He did sound and lighting and everything. It was just sort of something that started. For instance, when I was 12, he produced a musical about the life of Tom Sawyer, you know, Mark Twain. And he asked me to do a safety copy of the sound when it was aired. And they ended up saying that my version of the show was better than their professional.
0: No kidding,
1: wow. And then I got into, you know, stereo and I got into very advanced stuff, like when they were first out graphic equalizers and parametric equalizers and all these things. And so that was a natural sounding board, a natural path to doing Gordon sound, which I did for a number of years. Lighting, I picked up along the way. Started out very simple because I really didn't know what I was doing. But time, experience, learning things, and it finally came together. So I did that for a number of years. And as Gordon says in the uh, forward, I did those jobs simultaneously.
0: That is a huge load. And of course, we know that Charlie Morgan came on the scene in later years to sort of take some of that load off of your shoulders. And that's exactly what Gordon said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That may have been his exact words. And the book does talk about that a lot. You were at a lot of different venues for Gordon over the years. Can you remember the biggest venue that
1: Gordon ever played and what that show was like? Biggest venue now, you can define big. Is that the size of the venue itself? In that case, it might be the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City or Royal Albert Hall in London. If you mean big by the number of people that attended, well, you've yeah. got Massey Hall up to eight shows in a week. So it's 3,500 times eight. You can do the math on that one. That was the number of people. Royal Albert Hall was always sold out. I think it's around 5,000 or something like that. And of course, well, the CNE, who knows how many thousands and thousands of people were there at the benefit for the Olympic team, which had to withdraw because Russia was up no good, as usual. Those were very, very big. And of course, it all happened after sundown. You know, we were doing the colleges and universities and even Carnegie Hall. But as soon as sundown went number one, the whole thing changed. And Gordon started doing two shows a night. Why? Because the promoter rents the building for the night. So, you know, let's double up and make some money.
0: And I can only imagine how exhausting that must have been for the band. I mean, to be doing two full shows a night. So you talk a lot about each of the members of the core group in the book. You talk about Pee Wee. You talk about Red. You talk about Terry. You talk about Rick Haynes. And I think you talk about Barry as well. One person that you didn't talk about quite as much, Ben, I'm wondering if you have any recollections of this. My listeners can buy the book if they want to know the entire thing. But John Stockfish was around in the early days before he turned it over to Rick Haynes as the bass player. Any memories or stories
1: about John? Only one. And it's easy to say only one because I only met him once. And that was after uh, Gordon's concert at the Fillmore West in San Francisco. And that was also when I met Red Shea. It's a very interesting story about how I met Red. Much too long and involved to get here. You got to read it in the book. Yeah. Everything we're talking about now is Cole's notes. The entire treatment of all these things that we're talking about is in the book. It was kind of funny because Red knew I played some guitar. So he handed me his guitar backstage after the show and said, play something. So I noodled around. It was horrible. but And I could see this smirk on Stockfish's face, like, yeah, John, I deserve that.
0: Now, at some point, Red left the band and then came back. And so it was a five-piece band in the mid-70s after Sundown, where Red and Terry were sharing lead guitar. And I'm wondering, what was the dynamic between them? Was there any Discomfort that they have any bitter feelings toward each other, or did they no. really get
1: along well? One of the unique features of the Lightfoot Band is everybody got along. We got along. We all had our ways of contributing. Uh, Gord was the focal point, of course. But Gord had in a radio interview he said something about that: of why we lasted so long because we all get along so well. That's what he said. Red, and he, by the way, his coming back in the band was only for like a month. He was truly road weary.
0: So there wasn't a whole lot of time for there to be a whole lot of tension built up between Red and Terry. Everything I've read about the two of them seems like, at the very least, they respected each other and probably played off each other fairly well.
1: Yes, especially Red, but but Terry as well. They wouldn't get in each other's way. There were certain songs, like for instance, on Sundown, Jennings made, that was the one boo-boo in his book. He said, Terry played the solo in Sundown. No, it was Red. Okay. So he would play that. Also, on two or three songs, Red used a unique instrument called a high-string guitar. It's almost a 12-string. It's a 6-string, but the lower notes are tuned an octave higher. Songs, for instance, like Don Quixote and uh, Ode to Big Blue, the whale song, Red played a high-string on those, and he did in concert because that's what Gord's product was at that time. But as I say, it was only for those times. And at Royal Albert Hall... Red, interestingly enough, used my D-18, my Martin D-18, to play at Royal Albert Hall. It was strung, of course, as a high string.
0: The reason I ask is that when you hear about bands that have two lead guitarists, sometimes it is beautiful and other times there's too much fire going on. You think about Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Stills and Neil Young and they're having volume duels when we're together in CSNY. You think about Don Felder and Joe Walsh and the Eagles. As far as I know, those guys never stepped on each other's toes. But you have so much talent. You have a lot of potential tension that can go on between the two lead players. And it doesn't sound like that was really a factor with Red and Terry.
1: No, not at all. You know, again, I got to go back to Gordon's quote. We get along so well. That says it all.
0: Yeah. And that's what you got to have if you're going to be in close quarters with each other for so long. We'll be right back to our conversation with Richard Harrison about his experiences and his book, Once Upon a Red Eye. But first, let's do a little business. Attention listeners, the oldest record store in Toronto wants to buy your record collection. Cops Records is run by and for collectors. They know just how much heart goes into compiling your favorite music. Whether the vinyl belongs to you, a loved one, or a friend, they'll bring their 40 years of experience and sensitivity to every transaction. If you're thinking of selling a collection, visit COPS Records, that's cops with a k records dot c a or call them at 647-347-0095. You can also visit COPS at one of their three locations in the Toronto area.
1: Hi, this is Audi Martello, the host of the mostly folk podcast, a 60-minute foray into the music we all love. You will hear newly released albums, classic folk, country, and bluegrass music, as well as some traditional music that may or may not be true to the genre, sometimes irreverent, often opinionated, but always entertaining. You may even hear a radio magic trick every so often as well as numerous interviews via Zoom and telephone with established as well as indie artists. Mostly Folk is available wherever you listen to podcasts and always at mostlyfolk.org.
0: Has there ever been a venue that you played, irrespective of size, where, thinking to yourself, good riddance, I don't care if we ever come back here until Gordon retires? How much time you got? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, maybe pick one. If I had to pick one, well, first of all, there have been a lot of them, but you've got a job to do. You've got to put on the blinders. That's happening fine. Like the time that I nearly got in trouble with the Teamsters because they wouldn't let me carry my own guitars into the facility. No, you gotta drop it right here. We pick it up, we take it in, and then you can do it. And they actually kinda of, sort of threatened me. Wow. Um but there was a benefit that Gord did for some dance company. He happened to be in Long Island, and they'd rented out the uh, stadium where the Islanders, the hockey team, played. And uh, Waylon Jennings, road manager, borrowed some equipment from me. And after the show, I just wanted back. He says, I'll give it to you back when I'm finished here. All he had to do was walk over and pick the thing up and give it to me. But he did a big stink, so I took it to Waylon, and Harry Chapin was trying to make peace. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't miss that show, not at all. Harry Chapin was a wonderful peacemaker.
0: He's a perfect casting. If you were doing a movie for something like that, he would he would have been the perfect person to play that role, God rest his soul. How much interaction did you typically have with local promoters? And was there any tension or was it very business-like? Anybody who tried to sort of impose their will on you?
1: No. In the early days, you were dealing with a lot of independents. There was even a guy that owned a shoe store. He had Gordon for a concert. This was slightly after, if you could read my mind, but definitely before Sundown. But uh, Once Sundown hit, we started being in touch with the pros. I always got along with them very well. I have favorites, of course, like Tom Robin of the Artist Consultants and Jerry Lon of Northwest Releasing. And they actually got together and formed a partnership at one point. So it was just like, OK, boys, just book us in and we'll show up. You have to have a good relationship with You, you have to. Because... They've got a job to do. You've got a job to do. And the whole is greater than the sum of its parts.
0: Were you present at the recording of any of Gordon's albums? There is a story that you told in the book of how they got Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald in one take, which is almost unheard of. And as if that wasn't freakish enough, I mean, it went to number two on the charts. But were there any other albums that you were there present for while they were recording? Or were you basically there for the touring and not really involved with the recording as much?
1: No, uh, I was present for all of them from Summerside of Life until just before Shadows. I was there for all of them. Okay, well, good. So it wasn't just you being the road
0: manager. You had a front row seat to really the entire creative process.
1: Yeah, well, there's a quote in the book where, He was noodling around with the chords. Lenny or the producer, asked me, he what's that all about? I said, it's a song he wrote about the latest boat wreck, the the ore carrier. And he coaxed Gord into running it down. And Gord figured, well, it's only six minutes out of my life. By the way, that's another unique thing, to get radio play and go number two with a six and a half minute song, unheard of. Yeah. So net result was Lenny got on the intercom and said to Gord, why don't we put one down? Just for fun. And Gord kept protesting, but it's not quite ready. It's not ready. He says, Let's come on, just for fun. They did it. And then after the recording, Lenny said, Can they do it any better than that? And I said, No. And then he got on the intercom and said, Gord, get in here. We listened to it and said, That's it.
0: Phenomenal. I mean, that is one of those almost unheard of situations where the stars align in terms of the take, the length, the success of the thing you don't mess with greatness. And that was obviously a great moment for them. Now, on the road, and I want to preface this by saying that I'm not asking for any personal confessions and I'm not asking you to name names, but I had a very good... I wouldn't friend. anyway. <laughs> okay, there you go. I had a very good friend, <laughs> Pete Fullerton, who was in one of the shows in season one. He played for We Five. He was their bass player. He's since passed away. And he used to tell me that the availability of substances on the road was just absolutely phenomenal. We were driving once down to Southern California. and He said, you see this truck stop up here? I said, yeah, Pete. He said, I could probably get you a bag of cocaine in 15 minutes if I looked around hard enough. So I guess what I want to know is, can you say a little bit about, was that True when you were around, not saying that anybody ever partook, but was that an element in life on the road when you were with Gordon?
1: Yes, and no. Yes, in the sense is they were around. But first of all, Gordon and his band were very clean. We didn't use it all. I smoked a little dope when I was playing guitar for the Good Brothers, but that was about it. It didn't do as much for me as a nice margarita, let's put it that way. But if you really, really wanted to, yeah, you could find it. But we never really, really wanted to. That's good enough for me. I know that Gordon
0: did not have a reputation for using. I mean, he was a drinker, of course. We won't talk about that right now. When Gordon was on the road, a lot of musicians like to listen to what their contemporaries are doing, or if you want to say their competition. Was there a kind of music or a artist that Gordon liked to listen to when he was on the road or during breaks in his sessions or while driving around or flying around? What were his tastes like?
1: In two words, Bob Dylan. They have had for years and years, decades, have had a mutual admiration society.
0: That's starting at the top. And I I know that there was a rivalry between Lightfoot fans and Dylan fans for a while. And one of my very best friends in the world is a diehard Dylan fan. And I'm of course, a fan of Bob's, but there is a real symbiosis between the two of them. So he listened to a lot of Dylan. So I imagine Blood on the Tracks and Desire and Street Legal and the Christian albums were the ones that Gordon probably partook of in the years that you were with him.
1: Well, yes, but I have to preface that by saying, remember, when we're on the road, we have jobs to do. If Gord listened to anything in the car, a lot of times I rode with Rick and he'd ride with Terry or that he'd ride with Rick and I'd ride with Terry, you know, and then Pee Wee came along and then Barry. You don't really notice that because maybe he was listening to a song on the radio, but I'm in the other car. And when I was with Rick, we used to like to listen to uh, classical because it put us in a nice, laid back, peaceful mood. Whereas if in in the Gordon Terry car, they were playing Iron Maiden, I never would have known about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: got it. Um, I know he likes Drake. Oh, yeah, I know. And he actually mentioned that in the documentary, that he liked Drake. And there's a scene where there's this great big billboard that they've put up. And Drake, I think, is local to Toronto. So, you know,
1: local. Uh, makes he's good. local to Gordon, too. He lives next door.
0: Oh, literally. Okay.
1: Wow. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Now, Gordon, you've talked a little bit about touring in the UK, and Gordon hasn't had as much chart success in the UK as he has in other parts of the English speaking world. I mean, the U.S., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Do you have any insight on why that is? Why the, not as much chart success in England and uh, places in the U.K.?
1: Well, first of all, the purpose of a tour, um, like we did, oh, three or four European tours, is to sell records. It's to get people into the local stores. The downside of all that is when you've got that kind of entourage, I mean, just in the band, Like we started out, it was just the four of us, Red, Rick, me, and Gordon. Gordon and I would fly over together, and Red and Rick would join us the next day. It's still expensive. And as I say in the book, Gordon insisted that we all, not just the star and his band, you know, where the the star is in first and the band is in coach, he insisted we all fly first. Now, when you start buying first-class tickets across the pond, that's heavy-duty money, and you never make any money on these tours. You're depending on the record sale. The tours were always a negative financially. As far as that is concerned, he's always been very popular there. Why that doesn't translate, and I'm taking your word for it, why that doesn't translate to record sales, I really don't know. If you're asking me, you're asking a fish about a banana. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm just going by what I've seen online. I haven't gone over there. I haven't studied deeply into it, but the expenses of touring, you would think that they'd have to be backfilled by album sales or by record sales. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Good. And also that's more front office stuff. That's between Gord, his production company, and the record company. That's where those figures get tossed around. Not in my world.
0: That's a good segue to the next question I had though. When you were on the road with him, you were doing lighting and sound and toting the equipment from place to place. So from what you're saying were you not responsible for the books and the finances? Somebody else did that while you were on the road with him?
1: It turned out to be that way. But in the beginning, I did that, too. I learned how to check ticket sales versus number of tickets printed. So there would be a point even before I started packing up what equipment there was. And in the early days, there wasn't that much. There were no amplifiers. There was there's just basically sound stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I would go. First, first off, after the show ended, I would meet with the local pr- producer, and we would do the finances, and, and he would cut me a check. There was always a deposit involved, and then there was a clause for a, a boost in percentage if sales went over a certain figure, varied from venue to venue, of course. No, I did all that, and then I packed up the stuff. But again, after sundown, uh, we started working with some real major leaguers, uh, promoters, And I mentioned my two favorites before, and they would look after that because they were the promoters. And so they didn't have to explain the figures to anybody. They knew what they were. So at that point, that was a load that was kind of, it wasn't a bad load. Let's put it this way. It's one less responsibility I had to worry about in the later days.
0: Got it. And I think maybe the touchstone of this is it all after sundown, dot, dot, dot. That could almost be a whole book right there is just after sundown. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. And that's part one of our interview with Richard Harrison. Part two will be playing in the next episode, and that'll be coming out around the first week of April. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time.